Welcome to this week's episode of the HRDQU in Review podcast, where we bring you the latest insights and practical tools for enhancing soft skills training within your organization. This podcast is brought to you by HRDQU.com, and I am your host, Sarah, Learning Events Manager at HRDQU. And today I have Ken Phillips joining me to discuss the webinar, Creating Level 2 Quizzes and Tests That Actually Measure Something. So thanks so much for joining me today, Ken. Well, thank you for asking me, Sarah. I've um, I've been looking forward to this ever since we first started uh, talking about a date and and uh, getting together and doing some follow up to the webinar that I did uh, for uh, HRDQ uh, last week. Yeah, we had a really engaged audience. And Ken, you've done numerous webinars with us in the past. You're the author of Coaching Skills Inventory that's available over at HRDQ Store. But I believe this is your first time joining me on the podcast. Am I right? Uh, yes, right. I've done several webinars, um, but uh, probably four or five, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, right, this is the first podcast. Yeah. So can you let us know, can you just let our audience know that's tuning in? Can you share a little bit about who you are, what you do and, and your background? Okay, sure. Um, uh, I guess to start with, I've, I've been in the learning and development uh, field for a little over 40 years. Um, so uh, that's a long time. Uh, I started out uh, doing uh, consulting and training uh, in two areas. One was uh, sales performance and the other was performance management. Um, and I did that for oh, probably, I don't know, close to 30 years. And I, I was doing consulting with corporations to help them implement performance management systems and doing training around uh, all the skills needed to implement the system and then doing sales performance uh, training as well. Uh, and then in 2008, I had I had submitted uh, proposals to speak at the ATD International Conference a number of times during this uh, period when I was working on uh, in sales performance and uh, performance management, never got accepted. And but I didn't quit. So I I had uh, submitted a proposal in 2008 around um, measuring and evaluating training. And it focused on uh, level one evaluations and how to create more valid, you know, scientifically sound level one evaluations. And I got accepted uh, to speak. So uh, that was my first uh, time speaking at the ATD International Conference. But it also kind of moved me in the direction of measurement and evaluation. Um, I mean, all the learning instruments that, um, you know, that HRDQ publishes that I've authored, I, I was dabbling in measurement and evaluation with those, but I really wasn't fully invested in it. Um, but that, that experience kind of pushed me in that direction. So since then, um, all my, work uh, has focused on uh, measurement and evaluation of learning. And I do speaking and consulting and uh, writing. I've got articles that I've written and other things that I've written that are out there. So that's basically what I'm doing now. Great. And this question, I love to ask all of my guests that come on to our podcast. And that's what changes do you see happening in the L&D space right now? Oh, I'm probably not the first one to say this if you've asked that question before. <laughs> and that is technology, technology, mm-hmm. technology. Um, you know, and I look at it as uh, basically a good thing. Uh, you know, what it's done is it's uh, opened up lots of, uh, you know, different ways of providing learning and um, 
uh, you, uh, you know, cut down travel time and travel expenses and um, also allowed for things like the development of little micro learning modules for mm-hmm. reinforcement and, um, you know, in virtual uh, synchronous and asynchronous training. And, uh, and now with all the stuff around uh, AI and uh, chat uh, GPT, uh, Lord knows where that's going to end up, but I mean, it, 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 it looks like it's, it uh, has a promising future. So, um, I, you know, but I think the key word is that these things have to be used um, appropriately, mm-hmm. you know, and that there's a lot of bells and whistles with the technology. And, uh, yeah, you know, if it's not used, if it's not used appropriately or effectively, um, they, it probably really doesn't help all that much, mm-hmm. but the possibilities there. Yeah, that is the um, overwhelming responses, this, this <laughs> AI and um, just how fast the technology has really, really changed and how it's changing every single month. There's something new and how, how fast that's, that's yep. impacting our workforce. Yep. And uh, Ken, you know, what exciting things are you up to next? Um, I've got the end of, uh, November. Um, I'm going to be doing a, uh, mastering measurement and evaluation certificate program for training, uh, magazine. It's an online, um, certificate program and it consists of four, uh, three hour modules spread over a two week period. And, um, I'm also at the end of November doing a, an ATD core four uh, conference. I'm speaking, um, it, this, this is a virtual conference, uh, and I'm presenting on uh, a level one evaluation. And the title of the session is Add Muscle to Your Level One Evaluations with Predictive Questions. So I'll be doing that. Um, and then I guess the next thing I've got coming up after that probably isn't until February. And that's where I'm going to be uh, speaking um, at the Training Magazine annual um, conference and expo in, uh, Florida in the, uh, middle of February. Um, and I'm also have been asked to do my, uh, mastering M&E, uh, certificate, uh, program workshop as a pre-conference workshop. So I'll be actually doing the pre-conference workshop and then speaking during the conference. And well, it sounds like you have some, some exciting projects ahead in your pipeline. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I've got some other stuff that I didn't want to mention because it isn't finalized yet. It isn't <laughs> for certain, but um, I've, <laughs> but yes, I've. Um, you know, my goal every every year is to do at least yeah, a minimum of at least fifteen, you know, conferences or speaking at local mm-hmm. chapters or um, things of that nature. So uh, um, I. Uh, I try to, so I'm, I'm out there trying to, you know, submit proposals and do all that kind of stuff. So uh, I have an opportunity to present this information that I've had been working on for, you know, number of years now. Yeah, absolutely. And and so we recently did the webinar together titled Creating Level 2 Quizzes and Tests That Actually Measure Something. And can you share what the key takeaways were for registrants at that event for folks that maybe didn't have the opportunity to tune into that webinar just yet? Um, yeah, I think there were two key ones that uh, when, I, uh, when I thought about uh, that and when I saw your question. Um, and the first one uh, has to do with 
the fact that just because people have taken uh, multiple choice tests doesn't mean they know how to create multiple choice test questions. And so there are a number of common errors uh, that uh, people who aren't savvy in the art and science of creating test questions make inadvertently, not intentionally, but inadvertently, um, that uh, either give away uh, or or offer clues as to the correct answer or create questions that are uh, being viewed by uh, the test takers or the participants, if you're talking about, um, you know, learning, um, view the uh, test questions as either tricky um, or overly difficult and not see them as fair. Um, And so the net result is that you end up with some learners who maybe are frustrated with the test because they don't think it's really a fair representation of what they know. But on the other side, it also, um, you know, it gets in the way of the validity of the data you're collecting. So you may end up collecting a lot of data that looks like people learned something when they didn't because the test questions contained lots of clues to the correct answers. Or if you wrote tricky or overly difficult questions, it may look like people learnt, didn't learn anything when in fact they did. So, <laughs> it, you know, there's it's trying to s- strike that balance, avoid all these common errors so that the data you collect um, is valid and sound um, and credible. Yeah, it sounds like crafting, you know, those effective text, text test questions is both, you know, an art and a science there. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> well, and the other thing that we talked about and the second uh, key takeaway was the um, the whole idea around uh, writing test questions that not only measure like recall or, you know, whether people can recall what was covered in the training, but also do they know how to apply it? So writing what is referred to as job application focused test questions. And you get so much better insight and data if you can write um, job application focused test questions because you're not only measuring whether or not people learn something, but you're also measuring whether they know how to apply it. And that's key when you get to, if you decide to do a level three evaluation, you collect your level three data and it says, oops, people aren't applying it. Then you can go back to that level two data and say, hey, it wasn't the training program that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Something happened between the training program and after people went back on the job uh, that got in the way and prevented them from applying it. Because when we gave them the knowledge test, they knew how to apply it because we used job application focused test questions. And and so why should people wait one to, to three weeks uh, following a training program before administering a level two knowledge test? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think two reasons. One is credibility, uh, because, you know, when when business executives send people uh, to a uh, training program, you know, they wouldn't send their uh, employees or associates to a training program if they didn't think they were going to learn something new. Um, and what happens is if you administer your level two knowledge test immediately after the training program is over, even if you come back with really, uh, you know, outstanding results where you got 95% of the people scored, you know, 89% or better uh, on the knowledge test, the business executives, you know, kind of dismiss that because they are thinking, they may not say it to you, but they're thinking, 
Well, I wouldn't have sent my uh, associates to your training program if I didn't think they were going to learn something. So the fact that you're telling me that they did learn something, you know, it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't impress me all that much. Mm -hmm. But if you wait, you know, one or two or perhaps even three weeks, what happens is then if you come in with those kinds of results that, you know, 95% of the people scored 89% or better, um, now you got a story because the business executives, they know because they've experienced, experienced it probably. And they've also sent other people to training probably. And they know that when people come back from training, you know, some of them just don't apply what they've learned. And so now if you're telling me that, um, you know, that they really learned this and you've got data that you collected, uh, well, after the forgetting curve came into play, um, now you got a story. And why does the correct answer often contain the most words when creating multiple choice test questions? You well, that's one of those thing. problems that, uh, you know, that um, uh, the, that, uh, pe- that when people write the test questions, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and that issue happens just naturally, because when we write the test questions, especially if you were the one that designed the training and so on, uh, you know a lot more about the correct answer um, than you do about the, uh, the information in the other, you know, distractors for your multiple choice test question. And so we tend to put more information in that correct answer because we just know more about it. And, and I think, it, and it just happens naturally. So my suggestion and recommendation is, look, don't worry about that when you initially write your test questions. Write them all out. Now go back. And look at all your test questions and take and look at the correct answers and make sure that they're roughly equivalent in word length um, to the to the other distractors that you have. That doesn't have to be exactly the same. Um, but but don't try to get hung up on that when you're initially writing the stuff, because it'll just bog you down. So you want to get it all out there, then go back and and look at it and edit your uh, and edit your uh, your correct answer or add additional information to the to the distractors. And how can you tell if a response option for a multiple choice test question are viewed as plausible? Um, yeah, that's it's fairly easy to do. And but most people, uh, at least my experience is most people in L&D don't do it. You know, they write the test and create the test questions and administer the test. And, um, but the easy way to do it is to just collect data from, you know, you don't need a large number, 15 or 20 learners. Um, who have taken the test and then go through and do an item analysis and look at each, uh, each one of your test questions and look at then the response options for each one of your test questions and, and track how many of, of these 15 or 20, you know, learners that you collected the data from, how many of them chose each of the response options and what you're looking for would be some kind of a distribution across all those response options, assuming, let's say, you use four, that you would have res- you would have uh, people who have selected, um, you know, the uh, all four of those response options. And if you end up with some response options that either are v- under-selected, significantly under-selected, or nobody selects, uh, you will know those uh, response options 
aren't seen as plausible. So people look at the test question, they know right away, I can eliminate this one, this one, and this one, because I know those aren't plausible. So even if they slept through your training program, they would be able to, you know, get the correct answer. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, if you didn't, you know, if you couldn't eliminate three, even if they eliminated two out of, you know, and you had four, now you've got a 50, 50 chance of guessing the right answer. Um, mm-hmm. so that's why you need to write, uh, plausible, uh, response options. And the only way you know that is to collect a little bit of data, um, and do the analysis. And what about all the above? Why is that not a recommended response? The problem with that is, that savvy test takers know whenever they see an all the above response option to a test question, more than likely, um, it's the correct answer. And so, um, in order to avoid, uh, that, the key thing is to not use all the above, mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, uh, as I said, savvy test takers will know that, that that's the uh, correct answer, even though they may have slept through your training. Or the other option would be to use all the above with some questions where it's not the correct answer so that you, you know, can balance that out and then end up, uh, with, you know, um, credible, uh, valid data. And Ken, what I'm gathering here is that you're you you're probably a savvy test taker yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the problem with using not or negatively worded multiple choice test questions? Yeah, that's a, and I see again lots of uh, you know test questions that L and D people uh, create that uh, that use that uh, construct of called a null test question or a negatively worded test question, um, and there are two problems with it. One is that a lot of people see those negatively worded test questions as tricky. Um, because we're asking something, you know, not. It, uh, so they see it as tricky. And if they miss the test question, then they feel like it's not fair. Um, and so then you end up with, and if that happens with a number of the learners, then you end up with a whole group of learners who feel like the test wasn't very fair. And then they end up dismissing um, their, you know, the results because they, they said, well, wait a second, you know, I didn't do very well in this test, but it wasn't my fault. It was because all these, you know, were tricky test questions. Um, but the other thing that it does is if you're thinking about using, uh, which we talked about earlier, using your test questions for reinforcement, uh, of the training that was covered. That was when we talked about the, you know, waiting one to three weeks, uh, after the training was over before administering your test. Mm-hmm. Why in the world would you ever want to reinforce something you don't want people to remember? So, I mean, from from a learning standpoint, um, that just doesn't make any sense. And and that's not going to get you where you want to go. So uh, you want to avoid the use of negatively worded test questions. And Ken, before I let you go today, can you share where listeners can go to learn more about your work? Um, yeah, you can go to my uh, website, which is um, www.phillips, my last name, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, associates, all spelled out, dot com. Um, on my website are a whole host of, of articles that I've written um, that are all uh, free and you just uh, you can download them. Um, and I've got some ebooks that I've written that are there that are free. Um, and, 
some blogs that I've written that are just there for free. So if you're interested in getting more information, that's one place. And I'm also um, on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to me and connect with me on LinkedIn, I do send out updates um, about things that I'm doing or things that I've written or uh, whatever it is or places I'm speaking. So um, if you want to connect with me, um, you can uh just send me a connection request and I'll accept it and we'll be connected. And then you'll be uh, on the list of people to receive this information. So if you're ever at a conference where I'm speaking, we can connect or uh, have questions about anything that I'm, I'm sending out. Uh, you know, you can reach out to me and we'll talk about it. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ken. Oh, you're welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I hope you have a great weekend. You as well. And if you have yet to listen to the webinar, you can uh, click the link below in the description. It was a really engaging and interactive session there. So make sure to check that out. And we hope you enjoy listening to the HRDQU interview podcast available on all major streaming platforms. If you did enjoy today's episode, make sure to give us a follow and leave us a review. And we look forward to uh, seeing you all next week.